PD Pods present the Corona Cast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Corona Cast presented by PD Pods and myself, Prane Budev. Obviously, now we've breached over a million patients around the world affected by COVID 19. And there's been continual updated guidance almost on a daily basis from the powers that be. I'm therefore very grateful to have invited back Mr. Anish Sarajka, consultant pediatric orthopedic surgeon from the Norfolk and Norwich University Hospital and deputy training program director of the East of England rotation to talk about some of the updates that have been issued by the BOA and British Society of Children's Orthopedic Surgeons. Anish, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much for asking me on again. It's, it's my pleasure. Uh, so obviously in the last week, there's been a huge development and I can imagine people all around the country really working together to put out sufficient guidance out there um, to help support the professional body of orthopedic surgeons. And in particular for this episode, pediatric orthopedic surgeons. I have to say I've been very impressed by the BOA and BISCOS as to how quickly they've managed to do this and also keep their members updated and the whole point of this episode is to really talk about some of those guidelines and then as always in the show notes of this episode we'll have all the relevant links but i can recommend to anyone to visit www.biscos.org.uk and they have a separate uh, area on there for covid19 resources that i do recommend for people to have a look at but let's start off with uh, trauma, Anish. Tell me, in, in your hospital, how have things changed with regards to uh, managing paediatric trauma? Um, do you know, so there hasn't been any massive changes as yet. So I think the last time we spoke, uh, we talked about how we might be running minors. And that is happening more and more. So from next week, uh, A&E patients will get sent straight through. They'll be triaged. And if it's any sort of MSK injury, they'll be seen directly by an orthopedic consultant or senior registrar. Um, the big thing uh, we've seen is that there's been a massive drop in the number of trauma cases. So the NNN is a very busy unit for adult trauma. Uh, and actually, their trauma list has been much more manageable. Uh, there have been fewer cases, but the problem is each operative case now takes longer because of all the PPE that has to be worn, the precautions that have to be taken. So theatre efficiency has actually plummeted, but fortunately so have the number of cases. From a kid's point of view, our virtual clinic has seen a drop of about 60% in the number of cases that we're seeing. Um, and I actually called our uh, kids ED consultant in charge to see if I could be of any further assistance, because I don't know how you've been feeling as an orthopod. Sometimes you feel a little bit useless in all of this. Um, and I was offering my help with minors. And she actually said, no, look, we've, we've seen a massive reduction. They're seeing 20% of the normal volume that they, normally, that they would normally see. And I think this is probably due to the fact that we're in the very early days of being in a lockdown and schools being closed. But, you know, even as we speak, the sun is shining outside and people are getting uh, more and more uh, bored uh, being indoors and are likely to partake in things like outdoor trampolining in their gardens and going down slides. And we've actually had uh, two femoral fractures in the last week, both uh, sustained through this and also a Montegio fracture, all requiring uh, you know, management. I mean, luckily they just had hip spikers uh, applied. Um, but, you know, I think as the 
weather gets better, we're going to see an increase in, in the number of injuries. Uh, certainly my plastics colleagues have seen an increased number of hand injuries from gardening and also burn injuries from uh, untended children around boiling water. Yeah, um, you're right. It's, it's lovely outside. Complacency is going to settle in. I think we are going to see more and more. And I think that's when all the measures that people have already planned for will be the place. It's interesting what you said about trampolines. I do wish that they'd ban those as well during this lockdown. We've had one femoral fracture a couple of weeks ago with a trampoline. Uh, and that I've tried a soft cast spiker. And it had a solid scotch cast reinforcement. Uh, our pediatric nurses are going to meet the family remotely in about three weeks' time and go through spiker removal with them. We've already given them some information about that. But that's the kind of stuff that I think people are looking into more and more, aren't they? Um, and I've explained to the mum, actually, I, I was quite open, said, I've never done anything like this before, but you probably don't want to come back to the hospital, and she didn't. Uh, and so, yeah, if it works, then it's something that I'll adopt into the future because actually patients cream when you use a plaster saw to take a spiker off. So if this works, it'll be great. Yeah, and I think uh, speaking about the use of soft casts and back slabs, is that something you're doing a little more of now? And I know there's some great resources on the Alderhey website that, again, we'll put in the show notes of videos you can uh, ask families to look at and that shows step-by-step step how these can be removed. Yeah, so one of the things I have been working on in the last week is uh, a load of guidelines. So Phil Monsell uh, leads the course Education Committee and he had us draft some information sheets for families uh, so you'll have seen those on the website and for the NNN we've come up with uh, some guidelines again using BISCOS uh, you've got the Nottingham protocols there for manipulations in ED using Entonox uh, and intranasal dimorph or fentanyl uh, we've been modifying for our hospital and also I've come up with protocols for Scotchcast so which injuries do we want them uh, to send directly to our plastrum because our plastrum is now functioning uh, seven days a week so that these patients don't have to come back. So, uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of potential there. And we're even going to the back slabs because out of hours, our ED staff still put on back slabs. We've put together a video on how to remove a back slab and we're going to provide families with a pair of plaster scissors so that they can do this themselves without having coming without having coming back to the hospital, I think. One of the concerns, of uh, the medical legal risk are these families going to cut their child's arm but it's about putting all the appropriate information and steps into place so as far as I can see if we provided them with blunt scissors rather than saying buy blunt scissors and you've got good video resources for them to follow hopefully they can take responsibility for this themselves and I'm sure they'd prefer that. Obviously the whole point of this is to modify management but minimize morbidity and I think these are some of the small uh, pragmatic steps we're putting into place. Do you think these uh, will continue to be used following, um, following the pandemic? I really hope so. I really, really hope that uh, these will be the positive things we see coming out of this. Um, I am worried uh, that people will make decisions that are not right. You know, you can treat a forearm fracture badly, operatively or non-operatively. And our job has always been working out what would do absolutely fine, even if we left it alone. And we've probably never been brave enough to actually go with it. And that's what we've got to do right now is use our knowledge uh, and do the right thing for the family in front of us and the patient in front of us. There are some fractures that I think will need fixing. And then that's going to come down to each unit's uh, resources. It's all about that. The BOA have 
made that quite clear that you've got to work within the resources that your unit and department have. And yeah, if you came with a fracture to my hospital right now, as I said, we can deal with it. We're not in a situation where everyone needs to just be put in a plaster and sent away. And I am worried that if that happens uh, with people feeling that they need to do that because that's what the um, bodies and the powers to be have said, then we might see some difficult malunions to deal with in the future. Um, so hopefully, though, and then people won't dwell on those. That's my concern, is that people who want to fix fractures might look at what happens in the next few months and say, well, I remember during the COVID times, there were all these forearms mismanaged and we had to do all these osteotomies. But if we manage them well, then I don't think we will. Yeah, and it's nice to see how the Royal National Orthopaedic Hospital in Stanmore and Oswestry, which for those who don't know are typically largely elective-based hospitals, have both become sort of mini uh, trauma centres for their region. And, uh, uh, you know, they've been putting out some decent output. Actually, for them as well, I spoke to one of their consultants today. They um, have had very few paediatric cases, but, you know, they've really helped offload the local district, district general hospitals of their, of their trauma workload. Um, Obviously, right now, we're still only two weeks since really we've all been on lockdown. Um, but if we don't expect to peak for another, let's say, four to six weeks, there have been suggestions that we may have to completely amend the way we manage these fractures. And I think this is all thinking about worst case scenario um, type situations where we may end up just having to manage everything conservatively and dealing with this. And uh, as I mentioned before, the Alder Hay orthopedics approach to managing children is a document on the Viscos website. And, um, you know, I, I felt slightly uneasy reading some parts of it, but I guess we have to be realists in this situation and think about, are we going to get to this point? Yeah. Um, and we just don't know, do we? I think, but what I think is great is that everyone has planned put all of this stuff out there already. So we're all hoping for the best and preparing for the worst. Uh, you know, all of us hope that we won't have to do what's been put out there. But at least we've got this guidance and support because I think a lot of us feel uneasy, just like you said, you feel uneasy about leaving things. Um, but when you know that actually your national body has taken these steps and will support you, it makes practicing as an orthopedic surgeon much easier. Um, in terms of what we do as priorities, um, I think if it's a life or limb-threatening injury, you will deal with it. But yes, if there's no theatre space, if your uh, theatre uh, and anaesthetic rooms are filled with patients being ventilated uh, and all you've got is some Entenox, you are just going to straighten a limb, uh, put it in a plaster and off you go. And you could argue, well, is it even worth doing an x-ray when you take the plaster off in six weeks? Uh, that's the kind of medicine we may have to practice. In the east of England, in, yeah, we actually have the fewest cases of COVID across the country so far. Um, and we're hoping that we don't get to the stage London has. But actually, yeah, our trust has put in all the steps necessary. One, to try and minimise the spread, because I think that's what we've learned from London, is that initially the steps weren't taken. So staff were getting more and more ill, more and more members of staff were affected. And so the workforce was being depleted. Um, but yeah, I'm really hoping we don't have to do what people have said that we might but it's just great to have that information available and again i think we you know we're all working against a common enemy here and the end goal is to have the smallest number of adult deaths uh but also the smallest number of kids with long-term disability and and consequences from how we manage them in this situation so i have to be honest I, I've, been, I've been very proud of being a biscos member uh and a boa member because you know they really have offered that reassurance and support as a professional body 
uh, helped assist pragmatic decision making and almost helped us uh, best marshal, I guess, marshal a limited physical resource that we may have. Um, let's move on to some of the other areas that people will be thinking about, like DDH. Um, I, you had kindly emailed me your very initial um, uh, DDH sort of man updated management during COVID, which has now been adopted by sort of the NHS and Public Health England guidelines. To just take us through the changes as to what's going on there. Yeah, I, um, so we started looking at it and it was, just, it was about a week before the PHE guidance came out. But really what we're trying to do is, and I'm paraphrasing James Fernandez from Sheffield here, but it's reducing the footfall. We don't want to bring anyone into hospital unless they absolutely have to come in. I know that at the NNN, we scan over 2,000 babies a year for DDH because of risk factors or abnormal exam. And then it was a case of making decisions about, well, which of these kids really need an ultrasound scan? Um, and we have to protect our resources, but also not put our patients at unnecessary risk. And so I felt that the first step would be, uh, I spoke to our radiologist who suggested stopping screening altogether. But for me, I thought if there's an abnormal examination, uh, I do believe that putting on a public harness early will make a difference for the majority of patients, not all of them, uh, but we want to pick them up. So we agreed that we will scan uh, abnormal examining babies for now, but not the risk factors. And so for those patients, we're collecting details uh, and then we're sending them a letter. The radiologist will reject. So the paediatricians will request the scan just as normal. They'll say, oh, this baby was breached in the last four weeks. Uh, request a scan. The uh, radiologist will say, nope. But they'll send me those details. I'll write to the family to explain why we're not scanning at the moment. And we'll offer them a plain x-ray at age six months. Um, and then we can work from there. If things get worse, if we find that we're losing more members of staff or things in the hospital are really bad and I, I feel I don't want any of my patients coming in, then we may have to pause screening altogether. Um, and, you know, we know that for most of these patients, a closed reduction will work. I think there are a group of patients where you pick them up with ultrasound, tablet fails, closed reduction fails, and then you're looking at an open reduction anyway. Um, but hopefully these numbers won't be massive. And I am... Um, maybe being naive, but hoping that things will be back to normal within about four to six months. And I think that's, that's very useful because, you know, up until now we've screened all these babies who have risk factors and we actually don't know what the pickup rate is. So this may be a very unique opportunity if this is applied nationwide to almost do a large research project on the percentage of babies who had risk factors that had this. Now I know there are certain um, you know, uh, centres that have looked at smaller numbers, but this would definitely be a national effort looking at that. Uh, is there any role for uh, orthopaedic surgeons to actually perform ultrasounds themselves if they've obviously had the appropriate training? Is that is that uh, useful? Uh, so I, I have a bit of a bias in this because I do my own ultrasound scans. Um, so yeah, I think it's a great thing. So for us, uh, and that's why we can still provide a service without relying on the radiologist completely is if they're not available to scan, I can scan the baby's hips. But again, what we have stopped, and I don't know what you've done, is things like, so we used to see them every two weeks and do the scan ourselves. We're not bringing them back in for those routine checks. So um, if I'm treating a new DDH, uh, yes, if they're a graph four, then they're coming in for a repeat scan in two weeks, because I think that's very important. Once we know that actually this is a centered hip and all we're treating is some dysplasia, I will be seeing them every four to six weeks. Our physios will be phoning them if they need. Um, and again, a big change for us was taking the public harness off. We've 
Uh, I've been at Norwich for eight years and for the first seven years, we weren't letting them take the harnesses off. And it was only at the beginning of this year that we decided we'll let families take the harness off. And in this era, and then I think you were at Current Concepts last year, I know you were, in November, where I believe at the deep session, about 50% of people pretty much still don't let harnesses be taken off by the family. That's something I think everyone's going to have to look at again right now because you don't want these patients coming in just for a bath and a harness check every two weeks. There are some great resources. Again, um, the International Hip Dysplasia Institute uh, put out a document yesterday uh, that, again, will be in the show notes. And uh, Pablo, uh, Pablo Castaneda from New York, uh, was one of them, and Simon Kelly, who I in, uh, interviewed for my other podcast, the PD Podcast, uh, was also one of the authors on that. Um, they they again do some of their own um, uh, ultrasounds, but they also have a YouTube video for parents to look at to help uh, assess their uh, public harness and are they doing it right. So some again down to patient education. Uh, will telemedicine and sort of video conferencing help? Uh, with these uh, patients just to give reassurance to the parents and ensure there's no problems with the um, uh, harnesses. What are you doing at your local hospital? Yeah, so um, when we do see them the first time, so yeah, I'm aware of the work the sick kids have done. They've essentially done a PBA type video um, so that people can learn and then sign off on the competencies of putting on a public and it's a great idea. Uh, what we've been doing is getting them to film us putting the harness on on their smartphone so they've got that. And then they take photos of various steps. And uh, again, we've got ways of contacting them and they can contact us via email or telephone. So if they've got any concerns with the harness, uh, we can talk them through it. Um, again, looking at the guidance that um, the club, the Ponsetti Users Group have put out through Biscos, they're also promoting the use of telemedicine, aren't they, for boots and bars, checks and things. So I think the family do need, the families need this kind of close contact. Even things with simple removing a back slab, we take that for granted. But it was only when I was putting the video together that you realise that if you've never seen this before, you could probably work out how to do it. But, you know, if you're the parents of a child, would you really want to do it without ever having seen it? And it's the same with the public. It's the same with taking off the uh, boots and bars. If you've never done it, if you've not had the practice or the experience, I think there's a lot to be said for meeting a clinician face to face, but um, so we've got to try and replicate that in the best ways possible. And that you nicely mentioned there, the sort of uh, Clubfoot uh, advice that's been put out by the UK Clubfoot Consensus Group. I actually watched a webinar last week with Naomi Davis and Denise Watson answering some of the questions from uh, clinicians and parents who obviously are quite concerned with regards to the management, this was hosted by a Steps Charity. Uh, tell us uh, what what have they put out um, as their advice right now? I think they're suggesting to abandon any new Ponsetti casting for the time being. That's right. I think so. They've said uh, don't start any new cases, and I think even if you're in the middle of cases, unless you can guarantee that you can see your children in a safe environment, because a lot of centres do have community hospitals that they can move to to provide these services. But if you don't, I believe they've said you should actually stop treatment uh, now. Uh, my concern with using other places is that if we've been told to socially isolate, then maybe going to other smaller community centres is still the best. But again, it's how you time things. So they made it quite clear that you don't want more than family, one family present at any one time. Uh, when you are casting, it should only be one parent now, not uh, both parents and siblings. So they've put some really good guidance out there. Um, but I think, again, every clinician is going to have to 
read the guidance and see what works for them. But I do feel things like boots and bars checks can be done via telemedicine. And the other thing they've suggested and uploaded a document on is how parents can remove the cast at home uh, using a bath and things like that. So they don't need again to come to the hospital unnecessarily. Yeah. Um, and I mean, um, I, I was a Sheffield fellow and we have a Sherrod Society WhatsApp group. Uh, and um, one of the users there uh, has talked about so at Sheffield, they're not actually going to be doing their Ponsetti service for now. They're actually teaching their families how to do stretches to try and maintain foot position and maybe improve it. So it's almost adopting part of the French technique, isn't it? So the physio and taping, there's not going to be the taping, but they will be doing the physiotherapy. And I understand that they're looking at putting this on YouTube as well. So um, I think that's where social media um, has really come into its own. So uh, you've got all these centers across the country, people able to communicate with each other and share ideas. And I think that's been really important. So you're not only have you got BizCost, the BOA, the RCS putting things on their website, uh, all these kind of personal communications that happen at a mass level are also changing what we do. I agree. And Global Club for Initiative and Steps Charity are, you know, ones that uh, parents tend to be encouraged to join uh, on social media. And, and to be fair, they've done a fantastic job as well as to getting the real information out there without causing a great scare. And I think mediums like podcasts and webinars and the option of uh, being able to ask questions to the professionals from around the country is, is definitely helpful. Uh, let's move on to the... Um, Elective issue. We're, we're going to have a big issue when once this pandemic is over because a large proportion of workforce is going to have been uh, overworked and potentially burnt out. Um, but we're going to have all these patients that were due to see us in the months of March, April, May, June, July, however long this goes on for. Uh, what are you guys doing uh, with regards to referrals? Are, are you doing telephone clinics? Uh, are you doing anything for your new patient referrals? Uh, what I've done is I've essentially looked at all the referrals, spoken to patients on the phone and then sort of stratified their risk as to how soon I would need to see them once we get back up and running. And obviously the same goes for my uh, planned elective surgery list, which was uh, fully booked until the end of July, actually, when this all started. That's obviously going to be pushed back quite a way now. Uh, what, what, what do you recommend and how do you recommend we use our time wisely? I think, uh, yeah, having said that, I've been sitting around not, you know, feeling a bit useless in all of this. Um, it's those things that I have been trying to keep on top of. So we have been keeping up with clinics with telephone calls. Uh, and just as you said, stratifying our patients into those that can wait six months to a year. So if you were a BDH follow-up and I've seen you for an x-ray, uh, actually sounds like everything's okay. I can wait another six months, even a year. If, on the other hand, you are someone where, for example, you've got Perthes disease, that's, that's a group I'm actually finding a little bit difficult to uh, treat with telemedicine because you suddenly realize that for me, for Perthes, it's about feeling the hip as well as looking at an x-ray. But um, putting it all into perspective, even if I thought this hip is stiffening at this moment, am I going to bring them in for any form of surgery? No. So all I can ask them to do is their stretches. But these, they're the group that I really want to see once this is over. So I've been talking to the families and it, giving them a predicted date of when I'll be seeing them next. So some, it's very easy to say, I'll see you in a year, six months. Uh, the other group, though, that, um, so for example, the Perth AIDS patients, I've been saying August, because I'm hoping that by August it will be back to normal. But then again, safety netting and explaining that if they've got any concerns, I can see them if necessary 
and we're, it's about weighing up risks and benefits. In terms of the operations, I'm not putting anyone on the waiting list now because we're not seeing any new patients. But yeah, that that is going to be tricky. Um, I did my last elective list, uh, which was, uh, and again, you know, you can classify, you know, or you can argue how urgent removal of eight plates is. But I've got a girl who was 13 years old, very nearly 14, has slightly overcorrected from a genuvalgum, but still has some growth ahead of her. And I thought, well, if I leave you six months, I'll be looking at you with various deformities. So I took those out yesterday. But there are a whole load of patients where I've had conversations about how we will have to be performing different types of surgery to that which we planned because the clock is ticking. And I've sent a letter to all of my families explaining this, that we're delaying surgery. All elective procedures are cancelled because we think it's important to keep people out of the hospital. But this is going to have an impact on their treatment in terms of when it's done, but more importantly for some of them, it might actually change the operation that is being done. So my one-year-old patients that were due to come in for open reductions of hips, I think they're more likely to be looking at osteotomies because we'll be doing them in about six months' time. Uh, and I'm dreading uh, what happens when we have to get back. Yeah, and I think you mentioned there about uh, patients with eight plates in. So um, there is the Doc Matter website, which I'm sure you'll subscribe to. It has a numerous number of services from around the world. And Peter Stevens, who I believe was one of the originators of uh, ape plating from Utah, has has talked on there about um, how he has virtually reviewed a lot of his uh, angulation patients uh, with getting parents sending a monthly photo of their limb stance. Um, he gets them to send it once every single month on the first of the month. He has an email address that they all email without faces, just of the legs. And you can tell pretty much and pretty quickly when the leg is aligning. Obviously, we rely heavily on x-rays and we routinely just see them every three to six months. Um, but we always have that one that calls back a bit sooner. Yeah. It's, Ooh, I'm a bit straighter now. So this is something I'm trying to adopt and innovate yeah. in my practice um, to see if that will help. Yeah, that no, sounds like a great idea. Let's move on. You're, you're the Deputy Training Programme Director for the East of England Orthopaedic Rotation. Uh, how is this affecting your current training? What have you guys done uh, to help engage them in uh, teaching and training activities? Um, it has been massive, hasn't it? I think the biggest thing in all of this has been the uncertainty. So there's been uncertainty for all of us in all aspects of life. Um, and I think so talking to our trainees, uh, they've been dealing with it brilliantly. Some of the guys uh, had the exam planned for May and then found out in March that that sitting has been cancelled. So this changes their career paths somewhat. A couple of our guys were due to go on Australian fellowships uh, in June and that's all been put on hold. The TIG fellowships, as you know, um, have now, it's been decided that people won't rotate into them. So it's, it's affecting people's training. And then, yeah, for the guys that aren't at key points like those, what are they going to do in terms of this time and how they count it towards training? So um, one of the guys I work very closely with, our director of education, Neil Kang, he's, a, he's the eternal optimist and he's shown that actually you can use this for leadership and management teaching in terms of those aspects of your portfolio. And some of our trainees really have run with it. The rotors that they're creating, they're creating rotors for the consultants. Uh, they're supporting each other with well-being resources. One of our trainees is uh, talking about setting up a balance group because, again, just like uh, all of us, they have their anxieties about their own well-being. These people are going to be put in the front line. And so personally, I wrote an email 
to our trainees together with Phil Johnston, our TPD and uh, Neil, explain that right now we don't want them to be orthopedic trainees. We want them to be doctors and just look after themselves and their patients. Um, and then we can discuss and sort out later. And I think we're going to need national guidance. I think JCST have, looking at their website, said they will provide this in weeks to come. In terms of what we do about addressing competencies that aren't going to be gained over this period. So it's, you know, it's an extraordinary time for the world and it is going to have an impact on people's lives in many ways. One of the things, uh, so this morning we were having a meeting over Zoom, so not having heard of Zoom at all about three weeks ago. You've obviously been a pioneer in its use. Uh, I've got to be quite familiar with it. Um, and it was brilliant. Nine o'clock in the morning on a Saturday, I'm sitting in my pajamas. I didn't have the video on, uh, but there's the postgraduate dean, the head of school of surgery, uh, the TPD, myself, our director of education, talking to 15 trainees, all in their houses. Um, and you can make the most of the time that we've got. And as someone pointed out right now, Monday is the same as Saturday. It's not like we're all out and about making the most of our weekends anymore. And they've done that for teaching. So yesterday at Harlow, they ran a great knee teaching session using Zoom, uh, putting up the materials for people to see. Uh, ran a journal club and we're looking at more and more ways of doing this and I'm quite excited about that because I think actually we can deliver teaching across the region maybe delivering it more frequently but uh, making it easier so people don't have to travel 50 miles to get to their teaching session so hopefully that's something that we'll start in this time um, and we'll better carry on over uh, the years to come once the COVID crisis settles down. And for those listening, you know, we're having another episode with the BOTA president to talk about uh, national recruitment at ST3 level, but also some of these uh, innovations that have been done uh, using uh, platforms like Zoom. I know uh, the Edinburgh um, trainees are doing something very similar as well. And I actually spoke to Lisa Hadfield-Law, who many of you will know as a surgical educationalist, and she really suggested that trainees focus on professional skills at this time because opportunities will be in, uh, in abundance. Uh, and also, hopefully this will help focus trainees to help squeeze out every education opportunity when we get back into our normal working and training pattern. Um, Anish, I think that's pretty much everything that I was planning to talk to you about. We have a, a physician wellness uh, episode that will be released in the next couple of days that I recommend all of you to listen to, to help underlie, uh, uh, understand uh, how we can address some of the stress that we're going through as as a group of professionals and also please do look at the other available resources that will be in the show notes and my last thing I'd like to say is is uh, Dr. Anita Patel who uh, was my guest when we talked about COVID in pregnancy and in children uh, she gave birth to a very well young little girl two days ago in Washington DC so I wish her all the best and thank her again for in her 39th week of pregnancy sitting down with me and uh, giving her uh, professional views on this. Uh, Anish thank you so much for joining me again and I hope to speak to you soon. Thank you very much Pranay. Stay safe. You too.